welcome back to another edition of the Paycast. I'm your host, Michael Pagani, joined alongside San Jose Sharks play-by-play announcer, Randy Hahn. Randy, thank you again for coming on. Sure, Michael. My pleasure. And, you know, a lot of people during this downtime have turned towards Netflix. Uh, what have you been doing during quarantine? <laughs> well, a little bit of that. Um, finally, uh, I started the series Ozark from the beginning again because my girlfriend hadn't seen the first two years I had. So we watched that from be- the beginning and then watched season three together for the first time. Before that, I was a little uh, late to the party on Game of Thrones. So um, I was only about halfway through that and powered through that. So those were some of the things I watched on uh, on TV. Uh, And I've just been uh, actually working uh, almost uh, every day. She owns a uh, cupcake shop. So uh, I've been driving a cupcake delivery car all around the uh, Bay Area Monday through Friday. So it gets me out of the house and I meet a lot of people and uh, it's been fun. Do you ever get recognized as the San Jose Sharks play-by-play? Yeah, it's kind of funny when you're you're rolling up with uh, cupcakes in a box and, hey, wait a minute. I know you, even with a mask on. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's been kind of fun, and it's been a surprise for some people. And then when word got out that I, you know, I put it out on social media, I was doing that, then people like specifically asked that I was going to be delivering to their house. So it's been fun. Now, during this whole crisis, uh, the state of California, for you, issued a stay-at-home order. Is that when you know, the whole coronavirus became surreal for you? Well, it, it, you know, we were on the road with the Sharks when, uh, when the NHL paused the season in the middle of March. Uh, we were in Chicago in the middle of a game when the NBA canceled their season. And then we flew after the game to St. Louis to play there a couple days later. And, of course, that game never took place. The league, uh, the NHL, halted the season uh, the next day. And then we all flew back to San Jose to kind of wait what would happen, not really knowing and then, uh, you know, the, the reality set in when it was apparent that there would be no more regular season. Because for the Sharks, even with the expanded 2014 format, they were not going to be in the playoffs. So that's when it hit that, uh, you know, if everything goes as planned, we probably won't play a game again until December. Has your perception changed on the whole coronavirus since uh, March? Well, yeah, I mean, it continues to evolve uh, every week, every day sometimes. Um, and, and we've seen so much change in the knowledge that the health officials have had. Um, you know, when, when it first came out, they said, you don't really need to wear a mask. That's not going to change anything. And now they're uh, mandating that yeah. you wear masks. And it's become a big controversy uh, in, in this country, more so than in Canada, where everybody seems to be... Um, you know, uh, respecting the fact that wearing a mask is is very important. And I think the majority of, of Americans are doing that. But there still is a very vocal minority out there that feel their rights are being infringed upon and they shouldn't have to wear a mask. And I understand some of the confusion when, uh, you know, people are being written tickets for wearing masks or for not wearing masks in a public place, yet thousands of people were allowed to go out and protest. And in some cases riot and loot, and none of them got arrested for not wearing masks or not social distancing. So uh, there's a lot of uh, confusion about it and a lot of emotion about it here. Not so much for me. Um, I'm wearing a mask and and have done so since the beginning. It's all about keeping each other safe as well as yourself safe. Well, yeah, that's that's what you hope people look at it as, but uh, some people don't see it that way. They're they're concerned more about themselves rather than the the greater good. Getting into your story a bit here, uh, who influenced you to get into sports journalism? 
Ah, uh, boy, there was a, a lot of influences uh, early on in my career. Um, I, I kind of fell into radio broadcasting when I was still in high school. Um, I was 15 or 16 years old when I got to work on a, on a radio station and get paid to do it. Uh, so I was still going to high school and working part-time at a radio station in Whitehorse in the Yukon Territory. And, uh, you know, a, a neighbor who worked at the station um, asked me if I was interested in a part-time job there, uh, just kind of behind the scenes. And that eventually morphed into me being able to uh, get my hands on equipment and then eventually have a radio show. And that's where it sort of all kicked off. But, you know, I've had so many influences throughout my career. Um, from the very beginning, uh, Bill Good, who used to work on Hockey Night in Canada back in the uh, 70s and 80s. Um, he was one of the big influences in my life, the Montreal Canadiens, and I notice your hat there. Uh, they had won the Stanley Cup. Uh, this was in the 70s, and I was working at the radio station in Whitehorse, and that summer, uh, the Montreal Canadiens came up to Whitehorse to uh, play in a charity softball tournament, and I got to uh, cover their visit to our city, and in fact, actually got to go on a fly-in fishing trip with the players, and uh, Bill Good was there covering it for Hockey Night in Canada. He kind of took me under his wing. And then when I eventually went to UBC in Vancouver, he helped me uh, by way of introduction to uh, get a job in radio in Vancouver. And that's where my career really launched. Uh, I went from radio in Vancouver to doing television in Edmonton. And, uh, you know, those were some of the, the critical moments in my career to, uh, you know, go from just being a, a kid in a small station in Whitehorse to working on uh, Vancouver Canucks broadcast, BC Lions broadcast, and then in Edmonton working on the Oilers. When Gretzky was there, Edmonton Eskimos, Edmonton Drillers, uh, you know, the, that was really when things uh, took a big upturn for me. Well, you did grow up in Edmonton, correct? I lived there till I was about uh, 13. So that's where I was born, uh, went to, um, you know, school, junior high, uh, and, and was a sports fan but didn't really know that I wanted to be a broadcaster at that time. I was very interested in listening to the games, especially the football games, because these were the years before the Oilers uh, even were in the WHA. They weren't in the NHL yet. So we had a Western Hockey League team, the Edmonton Oil Kings, and I wasn't as interested in that as I was in the CFL and the Edmonton Eskimos. We had a, we had a good team back in those days. It wasn't the dynasty. It would become later with Warren Moon and that whole group, but I would listen to those games on the radio. There weren't that many on TV, uh, but on radio, I would listen religiously, uh, you know, and those were just tremendously exciting. And also uh, hockey, hockey night in Canada on Saturday nights, uh, that was pretty much always on in the house. So I, I, I kind of vicariously would watch that. And uh, if it was a Canadiens game, I wasn't as excited because I was a Leafs <laughs> fan. So if, if it was a Toronto game, I was really into it. But if it was Toronto against Montreal, then I was would for sure watch it. But my favorite players, uh, probably in the early days, my favorite player was Dave Keon, who was the uh, the captain of the Leafs. So that's kind of the era in the 60s and early 70s when I was uh, kind of interested in hockey, but of course not realizing that someday I would work in the NHL. You were fortunate enough to call a playoff series between the Sharks and the Oilers back in 2017. Was there any hometown vibes that you got when the series shifted over towards Edmonton? Well, actually, there was a series um, before that also, uh, the year the Oilers went to the Stanley Cup and, uh, and ended up losing to Carolina. So that would have been 06. Uh, and the Sharks also played the Oilers that year in the playoffs. Uh, Rafi Torres had a big hit on Milan Mahalik, which kind of changed the series in Edmonton's favor. We lost that. Um, you know, probably after the Sharks, the Oilers are, are kind of my second team of interest. 
primarily because it was my hometown. And then when I went back there to do my first TV job, uh, I was also working radio at the same time in Edmonton. I worked on the Oilers broadcast. So I worked on those before I ever worked on a Sharks game. So uh, I, I had that connection to the team. And that was before they went on their uh, run of Stanley Cups. Gretzky had just gotten there and they had Paul Coffey and they had Andy Mogan goal. Uh, Grant Fuhr wasn't even there yet in those days. So that was kind of the, the embryonic days. And, and I guess when I was there, they had the big playoff upset of Montreal in the opening round. That was kind of the big, um, the beginning. It's when the, uh, the Oilers were ignited as a team to be reckoned with uh, in the future. So uh, maybe a little torn, uh, not so much now. Uh, my name uh, is on a paycheck signed by the Sharks. So that's where my loyalties will lie, even though Edmonton is my hometown. Now, even before the Sharks made it into the NHL, you were actually a big advocate for the Bay Area to get an NHL team. How rewarding is it for you now, know, now knowing how successful San Jose is? Oh, it's very rewarding. Uh, we uh, were living here in the San Jose area in the late 80s, and San Jose void, voted to build a new arena, which is now SAP Center. And the feeling back then was that the Golden State Warriors, the basketball team, would move to San Jose to play in that new arena. Well, that never happened. And um, we were of the belief, some of us who were hockey fans in the area, and there was a couple of attorneys and I that were, became friendly and kind of got together with this idea of promoting San Jose as an NHL city. Um, the NHL had been in the Bay Area before with the Oakland Seals uh, back in 67 when the, uh, when the expansion happened. But then they went away. They moved on. But we felt with uh, the explosion of Silicon Valley and all the technology and all the people who had moved into this area from hockey areas like the East Coast, like, uh, you know, areas of Ottawa and Canada where there's a lot of technology. Uh, and uh, we felt that the time was right for the NHL to come back. So we formed a group and we kind of uh, were advocates. We didn't have the money to buy the team, but we brought ownership to the table. We attracted that. And so uh, to be able to broadcast games uh, after that um, was very rewarding. And now we're 30 years later. Uh, it's amazing to see how successful the franchise has been. Would you agree that is one of the many ways you did get the job with the San Jose Sharks? Well, I mean, it was one of the reasons I got involved with the group was to try and create a team to create a job. Um, ironically, uh, after doing a lot of the work with one ownership group, there was a change right before the team was announced to be an expansion team. And the people I was working with, Howard Baldwin, who's the old Hartford Whaler owner and his group, ended up trading their rights to San Jose to take over the Minnesota North Stars, which would later become the Dallas Stars. So at the last minute, I was um, uh, on the outs and really uh, not in the prime position to be the TV voice for the Sharks. But I was the backup TV voice for the first two years. So I did about 15 games a season the first two years. And then by year three, uh, I was offered the opportunity to do all the games. So for the last 28 years, 27, 28 years, I've done all the games. Were you ever nervous calling your first NHL game? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean... I had never even done an American Hockey League game, an East Coast Hockey League game when I did my first NHL game. I did a lot of indoor soccer for about 10 years in San Diego. I was the voice of the San Diego Soccers. And that really helped me for hockey because um, indoor soccer, if you've seen it, is played on a hockey surface in an arena with AstroTurf over the ice. 
there's three forwards, two defenders, and a goalkeeper. So that's kind of the same feel and, and cadence in the call of a hockey game, not quite as fast as hockey. So I had a lot of reps for 10 years of doing indoor soccer, and, and that was, uh, I was able to transfer that over to hockey quite easily. But, of course, uh, very nervous in my first game. First game I ever did um, as the play-by-play for the Sharks was in New Jersey. Uh, and the score after the first period was 3 nothing Devils. And then after the end of the second period, it was six nothing Devils, <laughs> right. and the final score was nine nothing Devils. So that was a rather interesting debut game to try and make it <laughs> listenable, viewable for Sharks fans. It was impossible; they didn't even score, and they got blown out. In fact, I didn't broadcast a win until my second year. Oh, wow. So I went probably sixteen or seventeen broadcasts without ever doing a win. Um, I never told anybody that because we know about superstition and yeah, yeah. <laughs> stuff like that in the NHL. If they would have known that every time I came that they lost, I probably would have been fired. But anyway, I got through it, finally got to do a win. And uh, then by year three, of course, we, we made the playoffs. Interestingly enough, you actually did the play-by-play of the NHL video game series when 2K owned it of 2K9, 10, and 11. Do you think that helped you brand your voice? Oh, I certainly did. It was a lot of uh, work. It was uh, tremendously tedious work. I actually did a game before that, uh, NHL Blades of Steel. It was the remake of, uh, of one of the first ever Nintendo games. Um, and, and that one, you know, took me a couple of days. But to do the 2K series, the first time we laid down the first year of it, took 125 hours in the studio. Oh my God. So it was, uh, it was very involving. It, it, you know, it took over a month uh, of going there like four or five days a week, and they would only record me for five hours at a time. So it took a long time to finish that game. And I don't know what it takes now. I haven't done one in a few years, but um, it certainly did help to brand me um, outside of the Bay Area. And now, of course, uh, doing games on NBCSN, which end up airing on um, Sportsnet's, uh, one of Sportsnet's channels in Canada from time to time, I'm seen more uh, nationally and, and North America wide. But in those days, if you weren't uh, living in the Bay Area and watching Sharks games, you probably didn't know much about me. And, and those video games certainly changed that. Now, you do have one of the best women's hockey players coming to your broadcast, broadcast crew in Kendall Coyne Schofield uh, to color commentate. Uh, how yeah. big is it uh, for her uh, to get uh, women in broadcasting, knowing that the industry is kind of male-dominated? Well, it's been great for all of us. Um, obviously, a terrific opportunity for her uh, as she continues to still play on the U.S. national yeah. team. So it's been a real challenge for her to try and uh, learn the TV biz. And she'd had some past experience uh, doing some games on NBCSN, but um, you know, was never thrown into the role with a team as she was this year. So great opportunity for her. Great for us to uh, broaden our um, viewer base with, uh, I think, women who are excited that they could turn on an NHL broadcast and hear a woman's point of view and a woman who comes from a, a tremendous point of credibility, being a current player, a gold medalist on the U.S. national women's team. So it worked out great. You know, we, we don't know uh, going forward for whenever next season is uh, that that will be in place again. I suppose it depends on logistics uh, will we even next season be broadcasting games in the arenas or will it be like it will be for these playoffs where for the most part, all the broadcasters will be in a remote site and only the players who are in the bubble will be at the games. And, and I don't know. I hope it's not that way for next season, but it could be. And that could affect how many people are on the broadcast. 
you broadcasted a thousand games uh, when you broadcasted the game against the Calgary Flames in 2009. How did you celebrate that plateau? I had a party uh, at a restaurant nearby. It was uh, a Hockey Night in Canada game on a Saturday. And um, Kevin Weeks and Scott Oaks crashed my party. They've been friends over the years. But, you know, I had invited maybe 100 people to a restaurant. And then word got out. And somehow they found out about it. They <laughs> just showed up. They weren't invited. But they were welcome to come in and drink free booze. Um, still haven't got either one of them to buy me a cocktail ever. But, uh, <laughs> It was, uh, it was a fun night and uh, had family and friends that flew in for it. And uh, coming up on uh, 1,900 games now, so we'll have to do it again in a couple of seasons, hopefully. What did you see in the streets of San Jose when they made the Stanley Cup Finals in 2016 against the Pittsburgh Penguins? Uh, you know, the night they, they knocked out St. Louis in the Western Conference Final was a really special night. Um, I'll never forget that. Um, it was probably the most special night of all because they ended up losing the Stanley Cup, so you didn't have that kind of night where you're celebrating a cup. But to, uh, to know that the franchise was finally going to go to the Stanley Cup was, was tremendous, and to have the clinching game in San Jose, I mean, people spilled out into the streets, and, and all the restaurants and bars around the arena were just going crazy. And uh, I, I got home probably around 3 in the morning. I couldn't get a, an Uber. It was just impossible to find one. There were so many people out. So I was kind of walking around looking for a cab if I could get that. And some fan just rolled up, like random Sharks fan dude. And he was yelling, Randy, 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 where are you going? I said, I'm trying to go, to go home, but I can't get an Uber. He says, come on in, I'll drive you home. So this dude who I'd never met before <laughs> what? Life, uh, drove me all the way home. So I guess we both had a good story to tell that night. Now, despite being a broadcaster, did you get chills from the fans during the finals? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I never got to broadcast the games in the finals because those were on NBC exclusively. So that was a little bit disappointing that I couldn't actually be on the air calling the games. But, uh, you know, that meant I was uh, either in the press box or going around luxury suites and meeting some of our sponsors and fans. And it was nice to be able to do that, too, and, uh, and you know, enjoy the, the victories, especially the, the win when Donskoy scored in overtime. That was a that was a, a huge win to win that way in the Stanley Cup final. But, you know, ultimately, unfortunately, it was disappointing that uh, they weren't able to take down the Penguins. Is it bittersweet at all having the Penguins win uh, on the road in the Shark Tank? Well, you, you never want to see somebody lift the Stanley Cup in your own building. But um, the thing that disappointed me the most about that night, aside from knowing that we weren't going to win the Cup, was how many people left the arena before the Stanley Cup was presented. What? Um, I, I, I was astonished by that. Even, even adults taking their kids out and leaving before seeing that occur. Um, uh, it, it was unthinkable to me that even though you lost, you wouldn't stay to see the Cup handed to Sidney Crosby and, and the, the Penguins parade around. It, it's such oh a special moment for the players, especially those who haven't ever won the Stanley Cup before. I mean, it's, it's tear-filled. It's joyful. Uh, the families come on the ice, as you know. Um, and I was, I was stunned um, that so many people left before that presentation. And that's may, that maybe speaks to the fact that we're, we're still a new market. Even though we're 30 years old, we're not as ingrained into um, the his, history of the NHL as, as, you know, you can imagine if the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup in Montreal. The fans oh, my would God. Be. They'd stay for the. They'd stay for all of it, you know, and and cheer the, 
applaud the Avalanche for winning the better team. But um, yeah, that was weird. And, you know, speaking of stunning, that actually leads, uh, you know, perfect reign to the next topic, which was the game seven against Vegas. Uh, we all remember how that went down. You know, there, it was the perfect game seven. Uh, but, you know, the Sharks were down 3-1 in the series. We can't forget that. And that's no easy task to come back. You know, going into game five, could you get a sense that the series was turning towards the Sharks' favor? Uh, you know what? I didn't feel that. And I, I still didn't even feel it um, in game six. But... Um, Martin Jones in game six in Vegas probably played the game of his life. Um, he was absolutely phenomenal. And then as, as it goes, you get into double overtime and you, th they finally call a penalty. That's usually the overtime where the penalty gets called right in double. Yeah. The, the, the refs put their whistles away in the first overtime and you know, they don't want to influence it because it's, it's potentially a series ending game if Vegas scores in game six in overtime. And then it gets to the second overtime and the Sharks get a penalty. And it's like, oh, no, this is it. And then for Hurdle to score shorthanded. He sniped it, man. To force, yeah, I mean, to force game seven, was it was stunning. And, and, and so even though you, you hope the momentum was shifting, you know, if it, it, it could have easily gone the other way and, you know, Jonathan Marchessault or, or Mark Stone scores and, and the series is over and we're going home. And it was so stunning for Hurdle to score that goal. And I thought, wow, we've just seen the best game of this series. Well, we, we hadn't. <laughs> that was coming in game seven. What were your immediate reactions when Vegas jumped, up to, jumped out to a 3 nothing lead in game seven? Well, you know, by, by the early third period, it was 3 nothing, And now you've got about, um, you know, 15 minutes to go in the third period. And, you know, you're being shut out. And it's not looking good. And I'm starting to think about what I'm going to say during the handshake. Oh, yeah. Uh, congratulations to Vegas. Um, but, you know, the Sharks fought a good fight. They were amazing in game six to battle back. And don't lose hope they'll be back ne next year. I mean, I've, I've got to start thinking about how I'm going to present uh, the handshake with Vegas moving on to the second round. And then with 10 minutes to go, uh, it all changed, as we know. And uh, one of the most amazing comebacks, controversial finishes, um, gut-wrenching, roller coaster ride, you know, come back with three power play goals in a row to tie it, then go ahead with a fourth, then lose the lead late. Yeah. So ties it up, and then for it to go to overtime, and then a guy who barely played in the whole game, Barkley Goodrow, Pete DeBoer throws him over the boards, Eric Carlson finds him, and, and he beats Fleury for... Uh, a, a truly, you know, if game six's goal by Hurdle was stunning, then, you know, game seven is, is uh, the double stunner by Goodrow. But it was, uh, uh, it was the most amazing sporting event I was ever at in my life. And I've done World Cups uh, in soccer and I've done uh, elimination games between Brazil and Argentina, two of the greatest rivals in World Cup history. But nothing came close to that game seven. Now, Joe Pavelski did go down after Cody Eakin tied him up uh, off the faceoff, which, which got the five-minute major uh, call. Do you think the NHL made the right decision immediately after the call? Well, I mean, the referees on the ice, you know, you've got the captain of the other team laying in a pool of blood after getting cross-checked. Cody Eakin cross-checked Joe Pavelski. He, the cross-check didn't cause him to bleed. His heading the ice caused him to yeah. bleed. That's where the, the, the injury occurred when his head hit the ice, but he was cross-checked. 
Um, so, uh, you know, there was going to be a penalty called, you know, a, a minor for cross-checking, maybe. But as soon as there's a pool of blood on the ice, I mean, what are you going to do here? It's not a reviewable call. And you're, on, you're the on-ice officials, and the captain of one of the teams is, is carried off the ice with a pool of blood. Uh, I don't know how you just call two minutes there. That is a major penalty in the eyes yeah. of the officials in that moment. And, and sure, we can all go back afterwards and, and dissect it and break it down. But, um, you know, you look, at, you look at the lead up to that event and the kind of punishment in that third period that Pavelski was taking in front of the Vegas net. He was getting pounded. And they were letting it go. You know, okay, fair enough. He was in there trying to screen flurry, trying to get a tip, trying to get a goal. It was still 3 nothing, And he was just getting destroyed in the front of the net refs are seeing that they're saying it's a playoff game we're going to let it go well, all of a sudden now he's in a pool of blood they're not going to let that go so it was what it was it ended up uh, it ended up resulting in two nhl rules being changed yeah for the next year just from that one event in one game uh, so obviously it was controversial uh, and vegas fans are going to be upset about it forever but you know at, at some point the onus was on the vegas penalty kill there <laughs> Uh, in that five minutes to, you know, to kill a couple of minutes off. And they just couldn't. And they gave up four power play goals. And uh, that ended up, uh, you know, telling the story for the most part of that game. Vegas did, like you mentioned, tied it up late with 47 seconds to go in the third period. Do you remember at all how silent the building went? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was – you go from the devastation of being down 3 nothing, then the elation of going up 4-3 – and then it's like, oh no! After all that, we're still gonna blow it. I mean, it was it was a tough one to swallow. But you know, that's that's credit to Vegas. They didn't they didn't give up. They didn't quit, even though they had to swallow the humble pie of giving up four power play goals. They came back and forced overtime. So full marks to them. And uh, you know, then it's uh, next goal wins. So it, it was uh, again. The, the emotional roller coaster of that game from that 10 minute mark on, uh, I'll probably never call anything like that again. You were part of the promotional uh, schedule this year, getting a bobblehead. How jacked were you when you <laughs> read about that? Yeah, that was fun. They did a, uh, a broadcaster bobblehead of, uh, of myself, Dan Rusinowski, our radio voice, Jamie Baker and Brad Hedekin, who both work with me. Uh, and, and interestingly, both former players, of course, and uh, Baker most prominently as a Shark, and Brett Hedekin winning the Stanley Cup as a member of the Carolina Hurricanes, but neither of them had ever had a bobblehead as players. So uh, it was fun for them, exciting for them, uh, and uh, no, it was a lot of fun, and the fans seemed to enjoy it, and uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a cool event. This year's All-Star Game trial player and puck tracking, how are you going to use that to your broadcast? Well, we've got to see. Um, I don't think it's going to be part of these playoffs now as uh, the, the, the COVID um, pause changed the priorities and, and that didn't become one as it turns out. So uh, I'm assuming that we'll get it next year and we'll see if the regular season starts with the player tracking and all that data. But, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see it first, um, try and figure out what parts of it matter um, within the live moment of the game. I know a lot of it is going to be wagering-oriented data mm -hmm. um, that is going to be used for people who are literally on their phones and placing prop bets, like who's going to win the next face-off and, uh, you know, stuff like that. 
Um, I, I'm sure we're going to be using a lot of the data on there. I just don't know how it's going to interface with our telecast yet in real time. I could imagine um, we're going to get to the point in the future, and that's probably not that far away, where on TV at home with your remote, you'll be able to decide the elements of the tracking that you want to see on your screen. And that'll include uh, how fast the players are skating. And, you know, those of us who remember back on the Fox TV days in the U.S. when they had the glowing puck and the, the tracking of how fast the slap shots went and the puck would turn red and things like that, I think you'll be able to do those things again, too. I always liked that. I, I know the traditionalists hated those kind of graphics on the screen, but I, I was hoping someday we'd have a choice to either, with your remote, have those graphics or not. And I think we're coming back around to now where people will be able to select. But, you know, initially, I think we'll see uh, ice time uh, things, uh, speed of slap shots, um, uh, things of that nature, uh, how many shifts per period, the kind of stuff that is out there now if you have um, the real-time stats running while you're watching a game, now they'll appear on the screen and they'll be much more easy to digest. But I'm sure that as we uh, go along with all of this new data and information over the years, more and more will find its way into the broadcast. Well, I think the most important thing when dealing with all this data that we have is to make sure the screen isn't as clunky as people might see, you know? Yeah, and, and I think that's where it comes to, once we have that interface where you can choose what you want, then you can have, you might like to have the crawl underneath with your data. You might like to have the score box up in the corner with where your data comes, or you might not want any of it. Um, you know, I, I think that's gonna be the, the perfect blend, but I could see right now um, either a, an upper screen or a lower screen craw crawl where a lot of that data shows up. What challenges might the new Seattle team bring to San Jose? Well, you know, as we saw with Vegas, I mean, going to the Stanley Cup final in their first year, um, Seattle's got a lot to live up to. And I'm not sure that they're going to have quite the advantage at the draft that Vegas did in the expansion draft because Vegas took full advantage oh, of yeah. the new drafting rules. And I think everybody's a little wiser now to how they're going to uh, look to protect certain kinds of players. Um, so it's going to be challenging for, for Seattle uh, as far as how they're going, what a challenge it's going to be for us. I think it's actually going to be good for us because it's another team in our time zone. It's going to help the travel for us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we'll basically have a division of teams that are all in the Pacific time zone. Uh, and, you know, just from a standpoint of going from San Jose to Seattle, it's a two hour flight or so. And then if you're on a road trip that includes Vancouver, it's another 30 minutes to Vancouver. So uh, it'll be great from that standpoint, uh, and and anytime you have you know teams in your own region, your own time zone, uh, you're more likely to have rivalries with those teams, as we certainly have seen between the Sharks and Vegas. Now the NHL is hoping to have a full 82 game slate starting in December, and you know as broadcasters and as a fan myself, we all want to be back inside the building with fans. Do you think the Board of Governors and NHL would both agree on sending a memo out to teams where they can set their own fan capacity? Um, I don't know that the teams are going to be allowed to set their capacity. I think the health officials in each region of North America are the ones who are going to be telling the teams what they're going to allow. 
Um, you know, San Jose Arena SAP Center is a publicly owned building by the city of San Jose. Uh, the NHL, uh, Board of Governors, the Sharks, neither of those entities has the right to determine policy in a public building. That's up to the city of San Jose or the county of Santa Clara and the health officials. So I think it's going to be left up to those people. Of course, there'll be, there'll be uh, involvement with the NHL and the Sharks to help determine what's, what's safe and what's best. But you know, short of us all having that magic vaccine that we hope is coming, uh, I can't imagine of uh, 17,582 people being in our arena until there's a vaccine. Now, despite the Sharks not making this year's playoffs, will you tune into a couple of games? Oh, no, I'll watch as much as I can. Uh, you know, playoff hockey is always great especially the first round. Now we've got the play-in round before yeah. the first round uh, and the potential for, you know, huge upsets there. Uh, you could get uh, a team that, you know, before the pause, you would consider to be a team that had a real good shot to maybe take a run at a cup. They could get knocked out in the first round by a team that wouldn't even normally have been in the playoffs without this. So that's going to be exciting. Um, yeah, I'll, you know, there's going to be a lot of games every day. Uh, I guess there's going to be three at, a, at each venue. So that's six games a day um, on a lot of days, at least in that first round. So there'll be lots of hockey to uh, digest. And I don't know if I'll watch each and every minute of every game because there'll be some overlap. Yeah. No, I'll be, I'll be definitely into watching it as much as I can. Patrick Marlowe and Joe Thorne are both the father figures of the San Jose Sharks. How has your relationship grown with them since you met them? Well, I mean, I've known Patrick since he, was, since he was 17 when he came to his first training camp. He turned 18 before the start of that first season. So, um, you know, it's somebody I've known for almost 23, 24 years. And I wish the best of luck to him with Pittsburgh. And hopefully he can finally get a ring on his finger. And Joe Thornton came to us in uh, 05, um, the biggest trade in Sharks history and the, the trade that changed this franchise more than any other they've ever made. And uh, Joe's become a friend over the years. And, uh, you know, we'll see uh, if the Sharks don't play again until December or maybe even in G even January. Will the layoffs since March be helpful for 42-year-old Joe Thornton or will that accelerate his decision to retire? I don't know. But everything I hear from Joe and, uh, you know, whenever I talk to Joe, it's not about retirement. That's not the utmost thing on my mind. Uh, there's other journalists who do that. But uh, when I hear him respond to those questions within the last uh, three, four months since the uh, pause, there's been no indication to me at all that he intends to stop playing. So uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see Joe Thornton play for a year or, or maybe even more and maybe even finish his career in, in Europe uh, someday. That's how much he loves the game. Now, I must ask, is there, has there been any internal competition between Joe Thornton and Brent Burns on who can grow the longest beard? Yeah, they, they, they were internally competing for years. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm going to give, I'm going to give the, the beauty nod to Thornton with that gray and brown and black all mixed in together. But uh, Burns can grow a pretty decent beard too. But my joke with Joe Thornton is, uh, you know, even when he would shave his beard and he has again this summer, uh, he could grow a new one in between periods. I mean, that's how fast his facial hair grows. Uh, he has a five o'clock shadow at noon. So, um, yeah, they're both uh, capable of growing robust facial hair, that's for sure. I, I could not compete. The San Jose Sharks had a huge roster turnover this year. What information are you able to give uh, fans outside the San Jose area on, you know, like Alexander True or Dylan Gambrell and Tim He? Like, people might not know these guys. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know where the, where the organization is going here. Um, from what Doug Wilson says, the general manager, he feels that last season was, um, was a blip. He feels it was an aberration and that a major correction, and by that I'm talking a major turnover of veteran players, isn't what he has in mind. So that would tell me that, you know, the big boys will all be back. Uh, the three big guys on defense, Burns, Vlasic, and Eric Carlson. And, and up front, you, know, you have players locked into long-term contracts like Logan Couture and Evander Kane and Timo Meyer and Tomas Hurdle and elsewhere. Uh, I think if, if you're looking for places where the Sharks are going to change, it's probably going to be in those third and fourth line roles, unless he changes his mind, which it's certainly his prerogative, and he does move one of the big pieces and, and goes out and gets a scorer. Um, Kevin LeBanks, a free agent. Does he come back or is he going to go somewhere else? I don't know. Um, and then you have some of the players with the Barracuda in the American Hockey League who got a taste last year, but uh, none of which made a huge impact on a team that didn't make the playoffs, if you know what I mean. So a lot of that's up in the air as to uh, who's going to emerge and push for spots in training camp, which we hope will be in November. Um, but certainly, just as there is every year, there's a lot of turnover on teams. Uh, and, and, you know, one of those, one of those big ticket guys could end up getting traded. You never know. And then for me, the biggest area of concern was in net and, uh, the goaltending wasn't good enough. Uh, and in the regular season, uh, the year before it wasn't good enough. Jones came back and, and had a, a great playoff actually, including that game five or game six rather against Vegas that I alluded to. And then on into the playoffs, in the subsequent rounds against Colorado and St. Louis, he was very good, but then tailed off again last season and just wasn't the go-to number one guy that we were used to. And then Aaron Dell backed up and his contract has expired and hasn't been re-signed. So there's going to be changes, uh, always is, but the changes this year will be very interesting to see if uh, the Sharks can get on track again next year or if this indeed is going to be more of a rebuild. Last question here on the podcast, uh, Randy, do you have any advice for aspiring sports journalists? Well, uh, you know, if you want to be play-by-play -play broadcaster in the NHL, I would say you should never, ever do that. Uh, that's a job that I like, and I don't want some young guy taking it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, if, if you aspire to be a, a hockey broadcaster, I would say do whatever you can to start doing it. Even if it's a, if it's a youth team and you do your own games, um, online just for the parents or a podcast or something or even just doing it into a into your phone and recording it while you're watching a game with the sound turned down an NHL game um, getting the words out of your mouth uh, getting the uh, the feeling of listening back to yourself and, and making yourself better each and every time that's the hardest thing to do uh, you can go to the best sports journalism or broadcasting uh, college in Canada, which is probably Ryerson in Toronto, you know, and you can come out of there and graduate with the best degree you ever, that money could buy. But if you can't turn a microphone on and call a game into a microphone and sound good, then it doesn't matter what your degree is. The degree is important, but the practical uh, experience of getting the words out of your mouth and, and getting reps and getting used to it and doing it over and over and over again, that's key. And, um, I would say do whatever you can to replicate that. If you're not actually doing live games, do them off a TV screen. At least you're, you're going through the process. Well, I'd like to thank San Jose Sharks play-by-play -play Randy Hahn for joining me on today's podcast. Thank you again, Randy. Great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Go wash your hands.